0: Hey guys, if you are struggling to stay focused, I get it. With everything that's going on in the world right now, it feels a little bit like Groundhog's Day. The kids are always here, and so there is no difference between Monday and Saturday. And it's one of those reasons that I want to make sure that you guys know about our Start Today brand. Start Today began with my Start Today journal. Several years ago, I came up with this product for myself that would help me to practice gratitude and to make sure that my goals were crystal clear in my mind as part of my morning routine. At the beginning of this year, I launched my priority planner, which was a way for you to take the biggest goal in your life and break it down into bite-sized pieces so that you could actually start to make traction. So if you have not checked them out yet, oh my gosh, go to starttoday.com and check out our newest line available in Target stores all over the US and of course at target.com. If you know that right now you need to stay on task, you need to stay on target, please check out these products. I think that you will love them as much as I do. Starttoday.com or target.com to start today the right way. Welcome to the Rise Podcast. I'm Rachel Hollis, and I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and a Google search bar. Each week, we'll be sharing tangible, direct advice or inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life. Today on The Rise Podcast, I'm joined by the founder of Charity Water, Scott Harrison. Scott has built one of the most admired nonprofits in the world, and he started out as a club promoter. Drinking every day, doing drugs, smoking three packs every single day of his life. If you ever wanted to hear a story about redemption, about the ability to change who you are and become something new and beautiful, this is the episode for you. Hey, Scott, thank you so much for joining us on The Rise Podcast today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. It's fun to chat.
0: Yeah. So um, I've already told Scott, I will tell you listeners, I am am losing my voice. I know I sound a little crazy right now. So Scott is going to be a champion and totally carry this for us, which is awesome because your story is so compelling and interesting. If there are listeners who are not familiar with you, will you tell us who you are and a little bit about how you got to the place you're at now?
1: Sure. Um, so I, I'm recording this from New York City. I live uh, with my wife and two kids. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, uh, older boy, younger girl. Um, I get to walk about seven minutes every morning from our apartment to the office, which helps because uh, I'm on the road a lot, and uh, lead an organization called Charity Water. And for 12 years, we have been fighting to, to make sure every single person on earth has clean water to drink. Uh, and currently there are about 660 million people that don't so one out of every 10 people alive is drinking dirty water right now as we as we talk and uh, we want that number to be zero. Um, I guess I, I got into this through a, a pretty uh, not traditional path. Um, I was actually a nightclub promoter in New York City for 10 years um, and going back even farther in the, I guess there there are three acts of my life the, the first act, um, was growing up in a, in a very conservative Christian family, uh, born in Philadelphia, raised in New Jersey. And when I was four years old, there was a terrible freak accident. There was a carbon monoxide gas leak in the home that we had just moved into. And it made my dad and I a little sick and it it completely destroyed my mom. And on New Year's Day, 1980, she walked across the bedroom and she crumpled to the floor unconscious. And Uh, The the blood tests revealed this massive exposure to carbon monoxide that had just happened over time uh, as we were um, breathing in these invisible fumes in this new house. And that was really a moment where everything changed in my life. And mom went from a, a healthy, vibrant... Uh, wife and mother to an invalid uh, wearing weird charcoal masks connected to oxygen tanks, living in containment rooms that were covered in aluminum foil. And, uh, you know, her clothes were being washed in baking soda 20 times. So just a really weird um, compromised immune system uh, as a result of this. And, um, you know, the, the the Scott as a kid was just the good Christian kid who played by all the rules. I played piano every Sunday in church in the worship band and, I, um, I didn't smoke, I didn't sleep around, I didn't drink, I, I, I didn't cuss. Uh, you know, I, I, I did, did all the right things. Um, and then 18 happened. Yeah. And, and then act two of, of life happened. And, and you know, it's, it's, it sounds so cliche now, but I, I literally lived out the prodigal son experience. I flipped the bird to my parents, I flipped the bird to the church, and I'm like, now it's my turn. Okay. Played yeah. by the rules. Um, did that thing. Now I'm going to try the other sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. And I moved to New York City. I actually did join a band. So I was playing rock and roll. Uh, joined a band, grew my hair down to my shoulders, start smoking, drinking, sleeping around, you know, gambling, drugs. And the, the band breaks up pretty quickly because we just Despised each other, and, and we're all doing drugs, and that's you know yet another cliche of you know the, the grunge band that breaks up. Oh my gosh, imagine that! But I had already moved to New York City uh, at this point, and I and I came across this profession in New York at 19 years old, where I realized uh, you could get paid to professionally drink. So, there was actually a job in New York City where you could drink for a living and make hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was called a nightclub promoter. And all you had to do was get, you know, beautiful people and, and then some rich people inside the right clubs at the right times. And you could charge them, you could tax them astronomically for alcohol. I mean, people would actually pay twenty dollars for a vodka soda that makes that cost 20 cents to make. Or they'd pay a thousand dollars for a bottle of champagne that cost you know fifty. So I, I determined that I am going to, in my, in my act of rebellion, I'm going to rebel in style and I'm going to become New York City's king of nightlife. I'm going to, you know, sit at the top of all nightlife. And I, 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 that I pursued that for about 10 years and I worked at 40 different nightclubs and, you know, I, I, got, I got pretty close to the top. There were probably eight of us uh, that, were, that were running you know, nightlife in the city at that time. And I, um, you know, and, and on the outside my life looked great i looked successful i was dating girls that were on the cover of fashion magazines i drove a bmw i had a rolex watch i had a labrador retriever i had a grand piano in my new york apartment like all these things that i'd collected that felt like the markers of success but on the inside i was rotting Um, it was so dark and depraved and degenerate and you know, I'm, I'm a massive user of cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, Ambien. I have a gambling problem. I have a pornography and strip club addiction. I, I, I have, I've i smoked two to three packs for 10 years, so I have a coughing problem. Pretty much any vice that you might imagine would come with a, a life in, in nightlife, I've I've assumed, I've, I've taken on at this point. And I come to this realization on a vacation in South America at 28 years old, um, almost 10 years in the business, that I have slowly but then suddenly, you know, it seems, become the worst person that I, that I know. Mm. I mean, there is, there is no one more emotionally decrepit and bankrupt. There's no one more spiritually bankrupt than I am. And I've betrayed every single foundational virtuous thing that I was brought up to believe in. And and as I just thought about legacy, as I played my life forward, I mean, I wasn't even sure I would live to to be forty if I kept this up. Um, you know, I might just die of a drug overdose. But but if I actually did continue down this path, my legacy, I might perhaps lead leave one of the most meaningless legacies of any person on earth. I mean, my tombstone could read, "Here lies a guy who's gotten a million people wasted." Yeah. You know, I mean, who wants that on their tombstone? I mean, and is the- there?
0: Is there a certain amount of um shame in that realization? Like does that I feel like that's a, such a massive place of understanding to get to like okay, I've I've hit the bottom. But what is the emotion that comes with it because most often whatever you're feeling after that realization actually feels like another weight on your chest instead of something that's going to propel you.
1: Shame, such an interesting word. Um my my parents Used to have this expression over the years that said, "You know, my conscience was being seared." I used to hate this, like the churchy language, right? I'm like, my conscience is not a piece of tuna, you know. I'm not throwing it on a skillet, okay? Um, But in some ways, that actually happened. I mean, the voice that said, "Hey, this stuff is wrong," just got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, it's like that little voice was in the corner of the room, and I threw, you know, a sofa on top of it, and just I didn't hear it anymore. I think it was less uh, shame and I think it was more of a longing to come home. You know, it was, it was this, wow, things were better back then and left to my own devices. You know, I, I didn't do this well. I mean, it's almost that, um, you know, how you imagine the, the, in that parable in the Bible of the prodigal son, like he's like, I, I, my servant, you know, the servants at my dad's house, like are living better than, than the mess I've made in my own life. And, and I want to come home. I miss that. So I think I missed the spirituality. I missed faith. I missed virtuous living. Uh, uh, as a kid, I used to help take care of my mom. I wanted to be a doctor so I could help other people. And I'd gone so far from all that. So I have this, this realization and I come back to New York City and and I just try to fix the problems. Because I'm still partying for a living. I mean, that was my job, and I I needed to do that to support my lifestyle. But I try to smoke less and sleep around less and do less drugs. And I was just kind of flailing and failing at all that. And you know, I write about this a lot more in depth in the book. But there was a moment in nightlife um, that that caused me to leave the city for a couple of weeks and get some even more perspective. And. You know, I remember just, just taking a break from nightlife. I rent a car from the Newark airport on a, on a one-month one rental. I have no idea where I'm going. And I just start heading north with a, a bottle of Dewar's and a carton of Marlboro Reds and a Bible. And I wind up in Moosehead Lake in Maine at this dial-up internet cafe with a, a bunch of like old Dell computers. And I ask myself, what would the opposite of my life look like? Not not a ten degree shift or a twenty five degree shift or you know not a pivot. What would the extreme one hundred and eighty degree opposite picture of Scott's life look like? And I thought, well, it would look like I quit I quit all this stuff, all this crap that I'm doing, and I would go serve others for one year, um, almost as a tithe or a, a penance for the ten years that I'd selfishly wasted. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna apply. To a humanitarian organization, I want to volunteer, I want to go to a poor country and see if I have anything to offer. And and I'll never forget from this dial-up internet cafe, I just start filling out these long applications to the humanitarian organizations I've heard of over the years. The Save the Children's and World Visions and Samaritan's Purse and UNICEF and the Peace Corps. And I never go back to my life in New York City. I I liquidate almost every material possession that I have down to my DVD collection. I remember putting up 2000 DVDs that I owned just in a single lot, trying to just purge, trying to start over. And to my uh, dismay over the next couple of weeks, I'm denied by all the organizations that I apply to. <laughs> oh my right? Which kind of makes sense, right? People listening are like, well, no. Yeah, of course he did. Like he's a drunk, drug addict nightclub promoter. Like these are serious organizations and serious people. Um, but but I had actually gotten a degree at NYU in journalism and i had been a pretty good writer and a pretty good photographer. And one of these organizations, uh, the one that hadn't yet denied me, Actually, I later found out, Rachel, they had denied me and then they had to go through the rejected applications because they couldn't fill the position. (laughs) So so they call me up and they say, um, we have this mission. uh, It's a medical mission on a humanitarian ship and we're going to sail to Liberia, the poorest country in the world. And uh, if you are willing to pay us $500 a month, and you go live in, in this country, then then we'll uh, wait, wait, we'll meet you, <laughs> we'll That's meet you and consider you a
0: volunteer,
1: isn't it brilliant?
0: That is insane. Okay, isn't it
1: brilliant? Yeah. So uh, so this is this is really the opposite of my life. Not only am I going to the actual single poorest country in the world at that time, Liberia had just come out of a fourteen year civil war led by Charles Taylor and his child soldiers, and this was a country with no electricity. No running water, no sewage system, no mail system, and one doctor for every 50,000 citizens.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: In America we have a doctor for every 300 of us. Wow, just for comparison. So not only am I going to the poorest country in the world, I have to pay to do it. This is perfect. <laughs> like I'm gonna go broke doing it. So I'm like, yes, I'm in. Here are my credit card details and and it happens so quickly. A couple weeks later, I am on a huge 522 foot, hospital ship with 350 other doctors and surgeons and volunteer medical crew and support staff sailing into west africa to see how many people we're going to be able to offer free medical services to and everything changed for me um, the minute I, I set foot in in africa
0: oh my gosh So, so tell, so I mean, like I have 900 questions based on just that story, but um, what I love and and what I think is a really great piece of um, knowledge here is like, I, I read something recently that said the price of your new life is your old one. And I feel like that. Oh, I like that. Yeah, right? Like you wanted to make change and you, you didn't just want to make a little change. You wanted to make drastic change. And that means that you needed to do something totally drastic. When you decided to do that, how – like the community that you had built around you, what was their reaction to, oh, by the way, I'm going to go go to a ship and we're going to go to – like what – did you have support from people or were people like, you're crazy?
1: There was a lot of curiosity, um, but what what I think surprised me. Uh, there were some people that thought I was doing this just to get girls. You know, <laughs> oh come on, Scott's a humanitarian now. Oh like gosh. I just did blow with this guy yeah. like at four in the morning in some shady after hours, and like now he's off saving the world, Please. Right? There was definitely there was definitely a fringe element of of pure cynicism, um, but I was surprised because I wrote a really heartfelt email about what I was. Hoping to achieve and how I wanted to change my life and turn it around, and and most people sounded jealous. Rachel, like Mm. like wow, I wish I could go do that. I wish I could be with a group of doctors who are giving up their their time as volunteers to you know on a hospital ship sailing into a country that needs help. Like, tell me how it goes. Like, tell me how I can join. Tell me how I can give money. So I was really surprised, and, and that was the the beauty. You know, wh- one of the reasons I wanted to write Thirst, the reasons I wanted to kind of get my story down is I really believe that no one is past, no one is unredeemable, mm-hmm. and 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 I have picture after picture of all of these things in my life that have been redeemed almost in a moment, and then you know, so for example, I I rolled into Africa with fifteen thousand influential people on my nightclub list, same people that I've been getting wasted for 10 years. Like Mick Jagger was on our email list, mm-hmm. you know? And, and back then email open rates were like hundred yeah, percent. Totally. So everybody got it. So, you know, I, I, they went from getting invitations to the Prada megastore opening in Soho or MTV's party or Cosmopolitan magazine's party. They went to getting images of people with leprosy, people with cleft lips and cleft palates, children with, with giant facial tumors suffocating them, kids drinking dirty water. So I was able in a moment to kind of redeem the, the people, you know, the, the tribe that I had uh, collected over 10 years and tell them a completely new story, a redemptive, important story about compassion and sacrifice and, and giving and and to my surprise, most of them were really receptive.
0: You guys, after months of waiting and a year of writing, my new book, Girl, Wash Your Face, is finally out in the world. I wanna thank you so much. Every single one of you who has bought the book on ebook or a physical copy or on audio, your support means the world to me. And if you are listening to my podcast and you haven't yet bought the book, You're dead to me. No, I'm totally kidding. But I am serious about how important this book is. I keep talking about it because I sincerely believe there are tools in it that can help change your life. So if you have the $16, I want you to go buy it right now because you love your pal Rach. And if you don't, head to the library or borrow it from a friend. But if you care enough to listen here, you're going to love the wisdom inside of this book. Girl, wash your face. I promise you will not be sorry you did. I love that too. It's such a great example of the idea that when we change ourselves, we when we change ourselves for the better, we inevitably start – like the ripple effects of that start to change our community and the people around us. And even those first people who saw the email who thought, man, I'd love to – what if I, you know, what, what does my thing look like? What if I changed my life? What if I did something different? I think the piece that you didn't mention that I, uh, I'd i love to bring up because I think it's really relevant is you were having some pretty bad health problems too with the numbness yeah. and your we we talk about that because I'm also someone who has worked themselves until they got physically ill and nobody, it was like the medical mystery nobody could solve. So that really resonated with me.
1: Yeah, so- Right before I went on this trip to South America, half my body just goes numb. It's so crazy. And I, I start going to neurosurgeons and getting MRIs and you know connecting sensors to my arms and legs, and no one can figure out what's wrong. You know, my my club partners like, dude, why don't you lay off the coke, yeah. you know, and 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 knock three packs a day of cigarettes down to like one and a half, yeah. right? <laughs> and you know, so, so that, that just started happening. And I remember, you know, I would run my hand under burning hot water and I couldn't feel it. You know, I could scald my hand without any sensation. Wow. It's like, I could have just smashed a hammer and, and just, it was numb. It was bizarre. And, uh, I remember so vividly, it was in the middle of the night and I was, I woke up and I walked over to my computer and I started just trying to self-diagnose and I, I typed into, I think it was Google um, at the time, you know, numbness. And I, instead of getting a medical uh, explanation, I got like some sermon about how, you know, you could be completely spiritually dead. And, you know, I remember that that was like a soul wake up call for me. Mm. I almost felt like, I I felt mortal for the first time. I mean, I'd been living like I was going to live forever, you know, running around recklessly. And, you know, I began to ask some tough questions. Do I still believe in heaven and hell? Like, to, you know, because I, I know which door I'd be knocking on, yeah. right, if it was all still true. And so that kind of led to, you know, the, the reawakening of, of faith and spirituality and morality. And I will say that before I walked up the gangway of that hospital ship, before I surrendered my passport and kind of became one of the crew, I quit it all. And I went out with a bang. I smoked, you know, packs of cigarette the night before. I had eight beers. It was funny doing interviews for the book. People, the volunteers remember me turning up, reeking of alcohol. Wow. Like I just come from a bar. But that was that was it. I never smoked again. I never touched Coke again. I never gambled again. I never looked at a pornographic image again. I, I, I quit everything. I mean, I drink wine and beer now. But I, I just walked away from all those vices. And I believed that it had to be this radical... Um, almost active obedience to to step into a new life, you know, to turn the page and to start over with a clean slate. And there was something almost prophetic or symbolic about walking up the gangway of a ship and imagining the gangway, you know, being retracted and then sailing off to a new continent to a new life and leaving all of that crap, all that detritus behind.
0: Wow. So you get to Liberia and you're using these connections that you've made to to help the cause along. Tell me how you get from that place to one of the most notable charities that exists in the world today. Y'all, we are doing a community-wide challenge and it's totally free and I am challenging you to join us. It's called Next 90 Days. As in, how can we be intentional, thoughtful leaders for the next 90 days? We're going to need our community. We're going to need accountability more than ever. So I want you to head over to the slash next 90 That's the slash x t 90 and join us. Every single week, Dave and I will be teaching on a different topic. Things like perspective or reaching for joy or dealing with anxiety in these crazy times. We are going to give you so many free resources and surround you with community. When we did this at the end of last year, we had 650,000 people sign up and we feel like it can be bigger than ever. Come together in a community of like-minded people and let's learn how to choose our mindset no matter what is happening in the world around us.
1: Well, you know, I I was with doctors and surgeons who were maxillofacial surgeons. And the first year was really spent documenting these these unbelievable before and after photos. And by unbelievable, I mean, you know, imagine a 14-year-old child living in a country with no access to medical care, uh, with no surgeon in a, in a broken country and no place to, to operate. Actually, there were two surgeons in a country of millions, but they had no place to operate. So effectively, there were no surgeons. So imagine you know, a 14-year-old child suffocating to death with a four-pound tumor that, that has filled his entire mouth and, and pushed out his teeth. Wow. And, and you know, terrified that he's, he's choking to death effectively on his face. And then these amazing surgeons come in, and they remove the tumor, and they, they sew him back up, and they give him a, a new jaw and a titanium plate, and he's restored back to health. So I'm taking these photos of kind of extreme, radical, horrific suffering, and then the joy that comes with, uh, the joy and the hope that comes with, um, with these healings. So that's kind of the first year, and I'm blasting my club list. And of course, there's some unsubscribes. People are like, this is gross. Like, leprosy, don't send me that. I, you know, I want to go hang out at the Chanel party. But most people, I would say 99% are like, this is amazing. How do I, how do I give money to pay for a surgery like that? Or how would I join you on the ship? So the, the first year goes by, and then the second year, I, I get off the ship, and I spend more and more time in the rural areas, out in the villages, out in the bush. And I see the water that people are drinking, Rachel. And it's disgusting. People are drinking from brown, viscous swamps, from ponds, from dirty rivers that look like they're they're flowing with chocolate milk. You know, kids are are wading through algae, uh, fecally contaminated water, you know, where dogs and, and cows have pooped in it, and and they're drinking this water. And I learned that half of the sickness. Throughout the developing world, what some people might call the third world, half of the sickness is actually caused by dirty water and, and a lack of sanitation and, and hygiene. And I learned that half the country, 50% of the people in Liberia are drinking dirty, contaminated water. So I just put this, you know, these very basic things together. People are really sick in this country to such extent that our doctors were turning away thousands of patients. People would come. So many people would come. For help that we just didn't have enough doctors we didn't have enough operating theaters we didn't have enough beds on the ship's hospital so we would turn away thousands of people many of them who had walked for a month that actually walked for from a neighboring country often with their children in the hopes of seeing a doctor that could save their child's life and we're saying we don't have enough doctors sorry come back next year if the kid's still alive
0: wow
1: so so I'm I'm just putting these two things together. Well, maybe the root cause of so much of the sickness that we're seeing is actually the disgusting water that people are forced to drink because there is no clean water in these villages. And I think it was it, it was especially um, a, a contrast for me because in my club life, I was selling bottled water for 10 dollars a bottle. Wow. Like it's vast. You want sparkling or still? Yeah. Right? Um, And people would buy five or 10 bottles in the club. They wouldn't even open the water. They would just let it sit there because they were drinking champagne or vodka instead. So I just couldn't believe that, you know, not only half this country we were living in was drinking bad water. Uh, I then learned at the time, it was a billion people worldwide. One billion people, one out of every six people alive on the planet was drinking bad water. And this just became the, the problem that I wanted to solve. You know, I'd seen a lot of things but this was not okay on my watch. Not if I could do something about
0: it. What I love too, and I just want to point this out because we do have a lot of listeners who have dreams of working with nonprofits or building their own. And I think that the really important note here is that you were not treating the symptom. It wasn't. I mean, you were. You were in a space where you were doing this medical care, but you went back to the cause. And so often, I think in the nonprofit space and in the charity space, we are trying to treat the thing that happens instead of backing up and figuring out what causes it in the first place. So I just love. It's one of the reasons I love what y'all do is that you're not. You're not. You're not just doing the medical work after the fact. You're actually trying to get it before it causes. Uh, health problems.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So that, that was that was how I found my way to water. And now I had my mission. Um, but then I needed to figure out how to actually make an impact. And the, the problem was, so I'm, I'm 30. I'd just done two years, 28 to 30 with the Mercy Ships. Now I'm, I'm living clean. So I come back to New York City unrecognizable to so many of my friends um, because I'm not partying with them. But I'm also broke. And I find out that my my business partner in the clubs, uh, never paid our taxes, nor did he dissolve our small, um, S corp. So I also find that I'm $30,000 in debt. And no, he's no like, case. well, I'm sorry. No, no he's case. like, sorry, bro. All the, all the unopened mail is in the bathroom. So like, you want to go deal with that, like more power to you. Right. He said, but you can, you can crash in my apartment. So I was crashing in the spare room and then the closet floor, I'm actually living on a closet floor, in a loft in New York City, $30,000 in tax debt. And I just decide I'm going I'm to start this thing in faith. And yeah, I get in a pl- payment plan immediately with the IRS and um, file those back taxes. Uh, but I'm running around telling everybody, I'm showing them some of the photos that i had taken over the last couple of years. With this laptop just saying i want to help everybody on earth get clean water to drink because of the privilege that i was born into into a middle-class family you know in philadelphia i never had to drink dirty water i'm i'm the five out of six but i want to help the one out of six and what i learned you know i guess what as a budding entrepreneur in this moment was that this wasn't going to be easy because people didn't trust charities And as I talked to everyday people, right, these were not institutional philanthropists. I talked to just the public. People were like, man, I don't give to charities. I don't trust charities. They waste money. You know, charities are black holes. You never know how much actually gets to the people in the end. And, you know, all these charity CEOs, they pay themselves millions and millions of dollars. And some of them hire their cousins and their family members. And, you know, everybody seemed to have a scandal, uh, a story they could pull out of their back pocket and say, this is why we don't trust. This is why we don't give. And I learned there was real data behind this. Um, USA Today, I think it was, had had polled Americans and found 42% of Americans said that they actually don't trust charities. And NYU had done another study that found 70% of Americans thought charities wasted money or, get this, or badly wasted money. So this shocks people, right? Because no one's more generous than Americans, right? We have this cultural heritage of philanthropic uh, support and and generosity. But 70% of the people in the country that were polled said charities wasted money. Well, that's what charities are in the business of doing is turning money into impact. So I thought, okay, the system... I I can't just uh, jump into the traditional system, which seems broken. Um, But I wonder if I could start with a a clean piece of paper and do something very different, do something very new. How would I win the cynical back? How would I win the 70% uh, and say, hey, we've got a different business model here. Um, Come back to the table. Give it a try. Take another look. And in some ways, you know, I was, and and maybe this will help people. On paper, I was uniquely unqualified to do any of this. I would be the last person that you would expect 12 years later would have raised a third of a billion dollars, you know, for charity and helped eight and a half million people get clean water around the world. Okay, I was living on a closet floor, $30,000 in debt with no charitable experience at all, but just, uh, there was like this this holy discontent. Like I felt like there was a responsibility to do something about what I'd seen and, and to make an impact in this issue. So having the clean slate, I'm like, okay, well, Um, it seems like the biggest problem people have is with money. So what if we just promised that 100% of every donation we ever took would always go to help people get clean water? would go to build projects to get people clean water. And people are like, well, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard. How would you actually pay yourself someday or your staff someday or an office? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to open up two bank accounts and we'll figure that out separately. So that every donation, whether somebody gives a dollar or a hundred dollars or a million dollars, it all goes straight. So you can't use the excuse with us, how much of my money will go? Because the answer will always be 100%. That was pillar number one. Pillar number two was, okay, well, if we've actually separated out the overhead, then money is no longer fungible. It doesn't just go into one big pot. So we can actually use technology to track what we're doing with these dollars. We can show people where the money goes. And we started by just putting every water point up on Google Earth and Google Maps. So we could show people the satellite images of the actual water projects as they were built. So proof became this pillar. And then the third thing was I just wanted to build an amazing looking and feeling brand. As, as I looked at the charitable sector, I saw anemic brands, I saw lame websites, I saw bad email marketing, I saw the shame and guilt left over. Uh, you, know, you, you might remember those commercials with, with the, the flies, right, landing on the African kids as they looked up with sad eyes and slow motion and the 800 number comes, right? It's just, we, it's, it's, it's not how you build a brand. First of all, you don't watch that commercial and go tell your friends about it. But you certainly don't wear the t-shirt of the charity. It's it's almost as if you know, Nike were to market you know, their brand by telling Americans how fat and lazy they were. And oh, by the way, you're pretty stupid. Why don't you turn off the TV and go for a run? Right? And please buy our clothes while you go, you know, while you go jog. Right? People don't want to be talked to like that. And, and that's not what Nike's done. They've said there's greatness inside you. You can run farther and faster than you ever thought possible if you just give it a try. And they tell stories of people overcoming adversity and climbing mountains, you know, who've lost legs or playing basketball if you've lost arms. And something is like, I want to tell my friends about that. I want to wear that logo. You know, I want to align with a company who might believe that there's something greater inside me. So I had that vision from day one of kind of winsomely calling people to radical, uh, compassion and to generosity and saying you you care more than you think you do. You have a higher capacity to care. You have a higher capacity to to help your neighbor in need, to give generously. And and this should be fun. You know, in, in fundraising, what are the first three letters? Not it's not downraising. It's not shame raising. It's not guilt raising. It's fundraising. You know, it should be a joy. It should be a blessing. You know, I hate the language that's that's so common in our culture now around giving back. You know, this makes it sound like we have pillaged and plundered to such extent that oh, we we finally should probably throw a few scraps back to the poor, right? Let's give a little back. Why don't we just that's so
0: good? I haven't thought about that before, but you're so right. Drop
1: back. Just drop back. Let's talk about giving. Frame it in the positive. Our company, our family, our faith community has a culture of giving. Giving because we can, giving out of, because we've been blessed, giving our time and our talent and our money because it's a joy, not out of debt or obligation. So just, you know, kind of put all these things. And then the the fourth pillar was not to send anyone that looks like a, you know, white male to Africa or India or Southeast Asia to go drill a well. I, I just, I just believe that for the work to be culturally relevant and sustainable it must be led by the locals in each of these countries where we would work so our role could be getting people with resources to care about their neighbors suffering around the world without clean water um, to raise money as efficiently and transparently as possible but then the actual work that would be carried out by ethiopians in ethiopia right? Yes. And can
0: can we just can we dig into that for just one quick second because there are so many people listening who don't have your experience with nonprofits and this work in other countries. Can you explain why it's important that if you are giving money, if you are supporting charities that you will look for um you will look for people who are doing work with local community leaders, not us going to another country and telling them what we think they need.
1: I think you just said it, <laughs> right? No, <laughs> no one, no one listening to that disagrees um, yeah. with that. I, I think, uh, you know, look, you can you can make a mess of things if you come in with your own set of ideas. There was a, there was a book once um, called White Man's Burden. That a professor out of NYU wrote, um, a guy called Bill Easterly, and he talks about the planners and the searchers, and the planners are like, okay, we got this all figured out, right? We're just going to come and drop our ten point plan of economic development um, on you, and and he gives an example of a charity that um, that bought like I don't know a hundred thousand solar ovens or something, right? Because they're like. Mm-hmm. Hey, you shouldn't be using fuel. it's expensive, it's dirty. it's causing upper respiratory you know using charcoal and burning down trees is not good for the environment it's not good for your lungs. so we're going to give you solar ovens. Well, nobody used them because it gets cold at night and people keep themselves warm by the fire and the fire is a social uh, it's a, it's like the social fabric of the community and that's where the stories were told. So you know, had they actually gone in searching? Right. And, and gone in humbly asking, you know, maybe they would have pilot 100 of them. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, look, I, I think um, uh, the, the locals probably <laughs> would have told them, hey, nobody's going to use a solar oven around here. OK, this just isn't a good idea. And in other contexts, it's a great solution. Right. Or maybe with the right training or the right discussion or the, the community involvement, um, it could have worked. So, yeah, so that that was the last pillar. So give away 100 percent. Uh, prove to people what we've done with their money, build an epic, imaginative, inspiring, hopeful brand, and then work with local partners. And day one to get this thing started, I just threw a party in a nightclub. <laughs> it was the only good <laughs> idea I had at the time. It was my <laughs> yeah, 31st do what, birthday. Do what
0: you know. I love it. But
1: even that felt kind of redemptive because you know I I, I got the club donated and I got the, the booze donated and we gave everybody open bar for an hour. And as they came into the club, I said, please put 20 bucks in this plexi box, and we're going to take 100% of whatever's in this at the end of the night to, to a refugee camp in northern Uganda, and we're going to build our first projects. And I'll never forget, Rachel, that night, um, a marijuana dealer walked in and he put $500 in that box. And he said, This is the first charitable gift I've ever made in my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm like, okay, we're on to something, (laughs) right? Because there's no one more cynical than this guy. Now, obviously, that's not going to be our donor market, but (laughs) we we raised $15,000 that night and we took all of the money immediately to Northern Uganda. We did our first few projects and then we sent the photos and the GPS coordinates and the satellite images back to the 700 people and said, You did this. You came to a party, you put 20 bucks in a box. And here's the clean water that you made happen a world away. And I was, people were blown away by the simple feedback loop. And again, people are listening and say, this just sounds so basic. Like that's what we would expect. Tell us what you did with our money. But they had never expected to hear from a charity again, you know, throwing $20 in in a box. And we said, this is going to be the differentiator. This is going to be what makes us unique. And, and we would hope to create a virtuous cycle of giving and generosity. If we can just show people that, we've, that they've made an impact. People want to help, Rachel. Right? So they want to help. They just don't trust the system. Mm-hmm. So if we could give them a system to trust, if we could show them that the sacrifice, maybe for some of those people, $20 was a lot of money. If we could show them that it actually meant something. Um, something good would happen, not just for clean water, but maybe even for for other causes.
0: So cool. And th- that was your birthday party. And then that became a part of your fundraising, right? Is that people would, like, for lack of a better description, they would sort of donate their birthday to raise funds.
1: Yeah. And, and that we just stumbled into a year later. Uh, I was turning 32 and I'm like, well, I guess I should do something for my birthday again. But the club... I'm not interested in doing another party in a nightclub. Um, that was a nice kind of turn for day one, but it doesn't scale. You know what? I'm going to get 1,000 people in a club or charge them 25 or 30 bucks. And I thought, well, I certainly don't need a party, and I certainly don't need any gifts. I don't need a you know, pair of socks or a tie or a wallet or you know a gift card. So what if I donated my birthday? And I thought the sticky marketing message would be that if I asked everybody I knew to donate my age in dollars – right. And I love that $32 was a messy number. And everybody, even if they had come to a party, they would have spent $32 just on taxis round trip and tips Mm -hmm. for the bartenders. So everybody I knew, you know, I thought had $32 that they could give to charity, especially if they knew that 100% was going to get there. And uh, to my surprise, after just emailing everyone I knew and this idea starts spreading and, hey, there's this guy giving up 30, you know, giving up his birthday and asking for $32. I raised 59 grand. So then there was a, oh, wow, okay, well, let's get other people to do this because I'm certainly not the only person on the planet with a birthday who doesn't need more crap, who could care about human beings having clean water to drink. So I started telling the story, and that September, 92 people joined wow. me. And there was a seven-year-old kid in Austin, Texas, <laughs> uh, Max Schmidthauser and he starts knocking on doors asking for $7 donations. <laughs> He lived in a nice neighborhood, I'm not gonna lie, but he raises 22000 dollars Oh
0: 000. my gosh, that's so rad.
1: Right? And then an 89-year-old donates her birthday, and she writes on our website: she said, I'm donating, I'm, I'm turning 89, and I'd like to make that possible for more people.
0: Oh, that's so
1: good. And you're like, oh, wow, she gets it. She's lived double the life expectancy of the people in so many of these countries because of the privilege she was born into, because of the the clean water system and the healthcare system that she was born into. And she didn't get to choose that any more than you and I got to choose where we were born or, you know, a sixth of the planet chose to be born in in a place where the water was dirty. So this idea just starts to grow like crazy and, um, you know, tech CEOs start donating their birthday. Will Smith, Jada Smith, they donate their birthdays, um, you know, it, it spreads through Hollywood and through Silicon Valley, and you know, other people said, "Well, I, I can't even wait until my birthday. This is I got to do something else." And people start climbing mountains or walking across America in solidarity with the women walking, you know, miles every day for dirty water. And um, this idea, you know, winds up raising over sixty million dollars and and helping uh, two million people get clean water. Oh my alone. gosh,
0: that's amazing! Amazing and it you you guys have forgive me for not knowing the exact um statistics here but just in case people don't understand this is not normal this is not normal for especially for a new charity this is not a normal thing and you had seen every year you were seeing incredible growth in your fundraising is that right
1: yeah we 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 grew lights out i mean eight eight years in a row um, and we were raising millions out of the gate and you know, the 100% model, I'm not going to lie, it was I'm hard, sure. right? As 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 we grew, we had to go and find donors who could get excited about paying for the overhead, yeah. get excited about paying for the office. And, you know, I write about moments in the book where we almost went bankrupt and we were almost insolvent and we had all these opportunities to compromise that model or compromise our integrity. And, you know, we, we, we never wavered. I um, mean even to the point of of defeat you know there would always be a miracle you know something would always happen uh, there was there was a moment where we almost shut charity water down because we'd raised millions for water projects but we couldn't make payroll mm-hmm. and at that moment a stranger walks in and donates a million dollars to oh overhead. Oh my god so I just there's so many stories and 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 to this day you know 330 million dollars later we have oh. never touched a penny of the public's money for anything except directly funding a water project Um, and we funded the overhead separately and now it's, it's 130 families who have come together, uh, in support of our, our staff, our office, our flights, you know, our insurance, the, the, the toner for the Epson (laughs) copy machine is all paid for by 130 families. And it's, it's been entrepreneurs that people have heard of. It's been the Facebook founders and Spotify founder and, um, you know, Twitter founder, a bunch of key executives at Apple, and through Silicon Valley, and and they have they actually get excited about helping us pay our staff so and cool. pay for the team, and that's allowed a million people now to give in the most pure way. Uh, and so, as you said, eight years of growth, and then we had our first down year. And do so, let me talk what, about. Yeah, do you yeah. know what
0: caused the first down year? Like, do you
1: have? Yeah, yeah we had two huge donors uh, take a hit in their portfolio. Oh, One no. company. One company laid off 10,000 employees and the other donor stock tanked 40%. And they said, hey, we love you. Like you guys didn't do anything wrong. We're just going to take a break this year. We're going to pause. So we couldn't repeat some big donations of the previous year. And this felt terrible. We went from getting a million human beings, a million new people, clean water for the first time in their life, right? This is 50 stadiums full of people, like 50 Madison Square Gardens full of people in a single year to 800,000 the next. Mm. And and I felt like we'd let 200,000 yeah. people down. And I had an existential leadership crisis. I tried to quit and hire a professional CEO and say, look, I've tapped out. I've taken this thing as far as I can, but I'm, I'm not the person to lead this anymore. We didn't grow. Worse than that, we shrank. And you know, there, there's I write about all this in the book. There's a lot more to that. But uh, what happened was I wound up taking a month off um, because I was really burned out. And I realized that that so much of my identity was in the organization. And that was really unhealthy. That when Charity Water was doing well, I was doing well. And it had always done yeah. well. And then when Charity Water, when my baby started you know, performing poorly, I was depressed. And, you know, my, my dad actually had a conversation with me, he said, well, okay, so you didn't grow. <laughs> like, Scott, if, if, um, if no one's told you this before, like, not all things go up into the right forever, okay? Like, I've been in business 30 years. You have good years, you have bad years, you have tough years. He's like, well, did you compromise your values in any way? I'm like, no. Did you compromise your integrity? I said, no. And in fact, outside of pure donation revenue, it was the best year in the history of the organization across all these other metrics, but we helped less people. And he's like, well, okay. Um, why don't you try again next year? And, and I wound up um, coming back to work, not quitting. And the realization was that we'd actually built the wrong business model. And I'm not talking about the hundred percent, but the birthdays that were fueling so much of this growth, people only donated one birthday to mm. Charity Water.
0: That's interesting.
1: So while it worked, right, you would do and, – and, and, you know, believe me, people that are listening, we, we still it's – a, it's a great way to get involved. It's a great way for kids to get involved. But you'll do one yeah. Rachel Hollis birthday, right? and you'll raise yeah. some money. You might build a well, and you're like, cool, I did that. Now, you might take the idea and go build a school the next year for your next birthday or a health clinic, you know, three years from now. But you don't come back to us. It was a non-repeatable idea and because you tick the box. You got your well. Or your piece of a well, so we had to keep finding new people every year. And I was working as hard as I could. I was before I started having kids. I did ninety-eight flights in a single year, and about one hundred and fifty speeches. And I'm like, I just I can't go get any more birthdays on the road. Like I just can't I can't work any harder. So what we we realized is, well, what if we could create um, Netflix or Spotify? for Clean Water? What if we could create a community that didn't just give once, but would actually show up for us month in and month out, giving what they could? So rather than the birthday, the one and done, you know, Netflix starts off every January 1 knowing it's got a hundred and some million subscribers, right? And then it's growing from that base, but it's keeping people happy and it's delivering content and delivering value. So I said, well, what value could we deliver to people? How could we show them the impact of their gifts where they would sacrificially be able to give month in and month out. And we kind of, we, we called, so I came back and built that at the end of year nine. We called it the spring. And as you could tell from the title of thirst, I'm, I'm a big fan of double entendres. <laughs> so, you know, the spring kind of meaning this place of new beginning, this time of hope and rebirth, and also the literal water uh, that, you know, so much of the water we drink is spring water. It's water from the yeah. springs. So we, we begin this community and we anchor it around $30 a month. Um, which is exactly what it costs us um, on average across the portfolio to give one person clean water, and we just started inviting people to give thirty bucks a month, or if they could, to give ten bucks a month. You know, we've we have kids turning in their allowance money to their parents, who then donate it, and and if they could, you know, maybe they could give a hundred a month, or a small business could give a couple hundred. It was really uh, almost less about the amount, but the act of showing up. You know, faithfully and loyally kind of fighting for extended change. And this thing just started taking off again. So, in the same way that the birthdays had, it started growing. Uh, we recently added our 100th country to the spring. And it's so cool to look at a map and see people in Africa, Rachel, giving 10 bucks a wow, month.
0: Wow, that's so rad. So, this, oh my the, God, so that's, so that's rad. now,
1: that then led to, so we're coming off our down year. Um, we built the spring, that led to 40% growth.
0: That is so incredible. So I, I want to point this out for those of you who are listening and you're inspired by the work that Scott is doing and uh, super fired up about the idea of helping to make change like this and knowing that 100% of what you donate will go to fund Clean Water. Tell them where they can go to find out more to join the spring
1: yeah uh charitywater.org slash spring <laughs> so we, there you go. We, we made that one simple <laughs> um charitywater.org spring um i love that yeah so it's a great way to help it, it really is and and you know some people don't know this but we actually pay back the credit card fees so if someone was given you know 100 bucks a month on their american express we get 97 we actually make up the difference those 130 wow. families pay the three bucks back every month and we send the full 100 to the field
0: that's so cool. Man, I love. I loved getting the chance to hear your story today. And for everybody listening who wants to hear more, this this episode comes out on the day that your book comes out. Oh, that's cool. Tell us, tell us about the book. Tell us about where they can get it and how you're donating the proceeds of that as well.
1: Yeah. So Thirst is just um, – it was two years in the writing. Um, it's not short. I think it's 99,000 words. Um, oh, my
0: gosh. Down
1: from 150. But it was – look, I really wanted to – um, to share my story in the hopes that it would encourage other people. Um, you know, I believe no one is beyond redemption. It's never too late to start over, and you can use all of the the dark or the mistakes or maybe even the evil in your past. In my case, and you can turn that for good. Um, that that actually can almost become your your superpower. Your it can become a, a weapon for good. And you know, uh, it's funny as people have pre-read the copy, I, uh, pre-read the book. You know, I get a lot of. Oh my gosh, you were a bad guy. I mean, (laughs) I mean, oh my God. Like, I had no idea you put that in there, (laughs) but I wanted to be transparent. So I think, you know, hopefully you read it. And if anybody feels stuck or feels like their past defines it, I guarantee you were not as bad as me. I mean, it would be, unless you've killed somebody, um, (laughs) you know, you'd be hard pressed to find a more degenerate uh, lowlife than than I was at the time. And, you know, now I'm, I've been blessed with this unbelievable life's mission and I have a wife and two beautiful children and you know, I get to travel around the world and, and preach generosity and compassion and, and help, you know, Charity Water is now helping 4,000 new people every single day get clean water. You know, every single day of the year when I come to work, you know, we're getting another 4,000 people clean water. And it's not because of me or our staff. It's really because of our community. It's because of everyday people out there who, who said, hey, we could do something about this. You know, let's, let's actually not embrace the apathy, you know, that could be so paralyzing with a global issue, but let's donate a birthday, let's donate monthly, let's, um, yeah, so I wanted the book to also be another way that people could donate, so I turned away, I turned over my, my book advance to Charity Water and all the future proceeds, I won't make a penny from the book, um, I even gave the money that I got to read the book uh, in the audio lab, I'm like, I want this to be clean, it's all got to yeah. go so in in buying the book they are helping um and then i i would hope that look people are going to be learning a lot more about water okay we're already starting to talk about it droughts in california flint michigan cape town and i i think some of the stories about the literal thirst facing uh, now a tenth of the world um i think that that i i hope people would find them compelling and you know there's so many stories of of women um we didn't we didn't really talk about water but one thing I've learned now over twelve years uh, at this, and I've traveled to sixty nine countries. I have been to Ethiopia thirty separate times um, it, it is exclusively a women's issue mm. um, the men the men never get water I don't care if I'm in Bangladesh or Pakistan or um, Sudan or you know South Africa Honduras. It is culturally the job of the women and the girls. To fetch the water, that's Mm. not even clean, and you know this puts a huge burden on the women who are often the head of their house. Uh, It's it's one of the top reasons why girls don't get educated, why girls actually drop out of school because they have to go walk for the water. Wow! And you you they fall behind in their studies. It's it's also a reason why we're not only bringing clean water to schools, but also toilets to schools. So many girls. You know, hit puberty and they I stay to home. Stay home, yeah. One week every month, yeah. and there's already pressure against them to be educated because they're so useful at home. So, you know, there's so many stories of of both you know the, the suffering of women, but but really the triumph when women get this time back. You know, that's the thing that's always surprised me is as I travel around and I'm asking women or girls like, "How's your life different? You don't have to walk for water. You know, you, you don't have to walk to that swamp." I would always expect them to talk about the quality change. You know, we would look at water like this, and it's water so dirty, we wouldn't let our animals drink it. Mm. We wouldn't let a hamster or a dog drink it. But yet, they're actually not talking about dirty to clean as much as they're saying, let me tell you what I'm doing with six hours every single day.
0: Wow.
1: That I don't have to walk for water. I'm, I've got a new business. I'm selling rice at the market. I was in Zambia and Zimbabwe recently with women who were selling rugs that they were making, earning an extra income for their family. And, and that's just, that's an, that's an amazing, so all those stories are in the book and, and I would hope that, um, that it would just inspire people and it would also help people get clean water.
0: Man, Scott Harrison, thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today and, um, for inspiring all of us. The thing that I kept thinking as you were speaking was that old line that said, uh, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And I just love uh, this isn't a faith based podcast, but I just love seeing that manifest in real time. It's so inspiring to me listening, and I know to our listeners as well. So, really appreciate your story and your wisdom and the awesome work that y'all are doing.
1: Yeah, and I should point out, Charity Water is not a religious organization. Yeah, no, um, and, and never has been. And I, I've been, you know, th- this was certainly birthed out of out of my faith experience, yeah. and it's cool that I get to live my theology out at work. Yeah. Um, in in giving water to people who actually need it, there's there's actually a lot of that uh, in in the book that I like to read. And but but you know I, I never thought that people should have to do what I do on a Sunday to either work at the organization or contribute mm-hmm. to the organization. Totally. And it's been amazing to see Muslims and Jews and Mormons and you know our biggest is an atheist. He thinks that <laughs> I pray to a figment of my imagination. Wow. But he's given $18 million and he's come with me to 11 countries oh, with his children. so rad. And that's like, it's a big tent that, that we're really trying to build. And we're trying to invite everybody in. Because to solve a problem this big, you need everybody, yes. right? Not just people who, who might believe the same thing that you believe. Yeah. But, but what's beautiful about both you know, reinventing charity and about clean water is that everyone can agree to agree. You know, yeah. it's 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 like Republicans and Democrats who might fight about every Literally other every, possible yeah. issue, <laughs> right? Can say, Well, you know what? We don't think kids should be dying from swamp yeah. water. Okay. And, and, and we don't think that the kids need to believe anything special to, to actually have clean and safe water to drink. So it's been awesome to bring people together from, from different walks of life to, to actually unify them and say, hey, we can, we can solve this. We could do this thing, this one thing together.
0: So cool. Hey, brother. Thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the new book. It is called Thirst. It is out today, and everyone needs to go buy a copy right now to help support this incredible work that y'all are doing.
1: Thanks for having me on, Rachel. Of
0: course. We will be back with another episode next week. In the meantime, if you have a moment, and you can write a review or subscribe to the podcast. That is life to those of us who work so hard to produce every single episode. For more information, you can check out deispodcast.com or stalk me on every form of social media. I am Miss Rachel Hollis on every single platform. Thanks to our producer, Alison Cohen, our sound engineer, Jack Noble, and our sound editor, Andrew Weller. Most importantly, I hope you heard something today that inspires you. I'll see you next week.